listening to the Theo Bros Podcast. The great Scott Christensen, who pastored in Colorado for 16 years before joining the staff of Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas, as an associate pastor. He and his wife have four sons. He's the author of two books, What About Free Will and What About Evil? Um, you're a huge Broncos fan, and you're carrying that into Texas. Um, do you ever get, do they get yeah, time for that? Do 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 I have time for that, or do they ever give you a hard time? And in, in oh, Texas? Do, do they give me a hard time? Well, uh, yeah, sometimes I keep my my fandom a little bit secret, but uh, but no, I haven't gotten too hard of a time. But maybe maybe that's because the Cowboys haven't haven't been too hot the last several years. You haven't wor- uh, had to worry about that, nor, nor the Texans. So yes so yeah they i i don't think they care as much about their football in this this territory of texas but but anyway yeah they're they're intense but they got really bad teams so yeah you're in good shape um were you an architect before god brought you into ministry i was yes yes and uh yeah it's it's um i still dabble in it a little bit even even now uh i i help design uh, a large expansion for our, our current church um, that's under construction, almost completed now. And, uh, and so, so yeah, I uh, uh, had a career, had a successful career as an architect and God called me out of that into the ministry. And, um, but, but not because I did, a lot of people used to ask me, well, why did you leave being an architect? Did you not like it? I said, no, I loved it. But when God calls you, you go. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, so I had to leave and, and uh, didn't like it. But I, I had God's calling on my life, and, and I was compelled uh, to, to go into the ministry. Wow. Well, uh, I'm glad you could join my humble little podcast. You're on this little podcast train, I've noticed, um, on your Twitter timeline. Um, and you've gone from one podcast to another to another. I think maybe your book has has met a huge need in the church, don't you think? Absolutely, yes. I, I you know, my first book, which came out about seven years ago, six years ago, uh, got got a fair amount of interest, and it did a few podcasts and whatnot. But the second book, which is much larger and and a lot more intense, uh, has generated a lot more response. I've been on a lot more podcasts and uh, and I've gotten some of the most amazing personal correspondence with people that have been deeply impacted by the book. And that's been surprising. I, I had, I did not anticipate that at all, but, but I've had people, you know, that have, have said their whole lives have been changed by reading this book. And it's just humbling. It's very, very humbling. I was uh, taking a run walk the other day, and there were a few chapters, uh, a chapter in particular that really struck me, and, and we'll get into the book in a little bit, but one, one chapter that, that the light bulb came on was, was that God is singular in his nature. He's, he is constrained by his own nature, um, and, and so what makes us think that we would have more free will than even God has. Right. And, right. It, and anyways, I, I just bring that up because that, like the light bulb came on in that moment. I almost had to stop at my tracks, like, oh my goodness, 
you know, in heaven, we, we will have a singular nature, a singular will, and a desire, and, and we will be free to love God in heaven um, and, yeah. and not hate him. And so there is, there is, a, there is in God's sovereign will, his ordaining meticulous providence over all things, still the ability for his creatures to love him um, and not merely be robots. And so anyways, right. I, that changed me. Um, and that, that turned the light bulb on for me. So I can imagine just you've gotten emails from all kinds of people that have, have been blessed by your book. You have, you have tackled two of the most important and really the most difficult questions Christians have ever had to deal with, you know, the idea of free will and evil. And you did it with such skill, with, with pastoral wisdom, which I, you know, that comes out in, in so many of your, in so many of these pages. Um, one book reviewer called your writing folksy. Um, and since you're, you're tackling these hard questions, maybe um, you could write your next book what about a pastor or what is a pastor? Yeah. Uh, maybe you could help the SBC in that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be a hot topic. It's a very important question for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. No, I'm not, I'm actually, I'm actually have been uh, contracted by my publisher to do a smaller version of what about evil, a, a more, uh, you know, condensed version. That's a little bit more reader friendly. And, uh, and so it is, it is dense in its language at times for people that, that are not used to that. But, um, so, so I'm hoping to condense it into about one third, even less than that, maybe of what the, the 570 some pages of it is, uh, and, and, you know, kind of zero in on the main themes and, and make it a little bit simpler, simpler for, for, you know, the average person in the pew who's had a, you know, a lot of people have had a tough time, you know, trudging through this yeah. big, thick book. Yes. And it's a lot harder. It's a lot, it's pretty hard to just hand to someone, right? If someone yeah. has a question about, about evil, um, this 600 page or, you know, 500 some page book to put it in their lap uh, might crush their legs. But if you were to give a, you know, a smaller book, um, on this, it would just be um, such a huge help and aid to the church. I'm curious, how has research, writing, and releasing this book helped you pastor and care um, for those grieving in your congregation? Well, it has. Uh, it has definitely opened up a lot of conversations and opened doors for conversations with people in my church and, and and of course, as I said, people outside of the church, I've had a lot of correspondence with people that have been impacted by the book, but we had, for example, last year, we had a group of 15 ladies in our church old and mostly older women who read through my book in a, in a book club. And, uh, and I was, wow, I was like amazed <laughs> that they, that they, they did that. And, uh, and so, you know, that generated, some buzz and I'm actually going to teach a, a course in my church uh, in an adult Sunday school class uh, this coming fall uh, on on the book and that'll be kind of, that the the people in that class will be kind of guinea pigs for the uh, for the condensed version because uh, uh, because you need I need to learn to communicate this you know at the level that most people are at um, when I wrote what about evil I was really kind of writing it for pastors and 
much more educated lay people who are familiar with with systematic theology and 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 have a little bit you know a little bit stronger grip on on theology and exegesis and things like that um and, and so a lot of lay people have struggled getting through the book i think they have all benefited from it if they if they stick with it but um but yeah it's it has definitely opened up doors to talk to people about some of the difficult traumatic experiences that they have had to deal with and uh, and i've seen a lot of people uh, and I've talked with a lot of people that have dealt with some pretty traumatic experiences in their life. Let's get into your book a little bit. Um, we live in a postmodern world, and you do a wonderful job in in chapter two of sort of unpacking our secular age and how we got here. We, you mentioned the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, the Enlightenment, putting human freedom as the highest concern. Um, faith was marginalized. You you have subjectivity. Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Nietzsche, all have had an influence in how um, society views evil today. How has the removal of God, you know, Nietzsche's declaration, God is dead, how has postmodernism twisted our understanding of evil? And can we even define it? Yeah, it's, it, there's, there's kind of a paradox, if you will, in in our modern culture because on the one hand because we have we have tried to put belief in god uh and certainly belief in the christian faith and the influence of of the judeo-christian worldview and western culture as we have pushed that to the side uh to the periphery and, and almost to the point of banishing it altogether in our culture um, we have had to try to replace it with these faulty uh, notions of, of um, you know, in, in other words, as we have, we put ourselves now at the center. And so whatever meaning we come up for ourselves, uh, you know, that, that is this man-centered kind of, of worldview has replaced a God-centered worldview. And so it has led to all kinds of distorted views of morality, um, distorted views of meaning and purpose in life. And so it's caused a lot of confusion. But at the same time, it has, uh, you know, it has caused a, a deep emptiness that you would expect if the Christian worldview is in fact true. Mm. Because as Romans 1 and 2 indicate to us, when you suppress the truth concerning God and you embrace a worldview that, that suppresses God, you know, um, you're not going to go very far before the, the emptiness of life and, and that compelling nature of truth is going to press hard against your de desire to suppress it. Mm. And so what, what I think that has happened, what, what that has caused to happen in the modern world is that on the one hand, we reject many of the paradigms for distinguishing good and evil and, and, and having any kind of handle on what is good and evil. And, and, you know, as the Bible, you know, warns, you know, we're, we're now at that state where we're calling good evil and evil good. And, uh, and yet at the same time, evil has never been a more powerful problem uh, for, 
modern people because we have nothing. We have nothing to turn to. We have eliminated God from our collective consciousness, as it were. And so the result is that, of that is that evil has not gone away. And it has made the impact of evil all the more distressing uh, for people who have embraced a godless worldview. And so it becomes all the more important for people to understand what really is going on in this world. And, and so it screams out for recovery, as it were, of, of the Christian worldview, which I believe is the only worldview that can make sense of, of good and evil in the world. When the Uvalde shooting happened um, recently, I took note and took stock of just the response of our secular culture. And there is, it's horrifying. They are horrified. They have no answer um, for what took place other than a really bad dude did it, but they can't define what bad is. And so they might run to, um, you know, perhaps he had mental health issues or maybe white supremacy, you know, kind of, kind of was in the mix of it, you know, white supremacy has be become the new, you know, original sin. And, and so it's just, it's a sad deal to watch our culture, watch people around us try to, try to deal with the evil um, that they see every day. And usually what it means is more government legislation. We, the, the kind of the response is we can't let this we, we can't let the lives that have been lost, um, we can't let those children die in vain. And so the response is, rather than, than turning to the Lord and seeing that judgment day is coming because they've rejected God, that now we have to do something now. And we have to do something with, you know, we have to create more laws. We have to, we have to denigrate, you know, whole sections of society. There's just mass confusion of what to do when evil happens. Yeah. And it's because people, people aren't willing to, you know, ask the deeper questions. Why are these sorts of things happening in the first place? Mm. And, uh, you know, when you, when you um, live in a secularized culture where God has been, all truth concerning God has been suppressed, you know, to the degree that it has taken place in our culture, um, you have no way to explain you know, why, why evil in the world is, is happening. You, you have no explanatory power whatsoever uh, to make sense of it. And, and so typically in those situations, you're just looking for, for temporary Band-Aid type solutions to sort of suppress uh, the effects of, of, that, of that evil. And so, you know, immediately in the wake of a, a tragedy, tragedy like Uvalde, uh, you have gun control and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's, like deals with the heart of the problem and you're not going to stop you know those sorts of things and of course we always have evil with us right because the bible tells us yeah. that you know we're all depraved from the moment of conception and uh and, and so you know but obviously different times and errors and cultures suppress evil to different or to suppress the good and the true and the righteous to certain level, you know, certain degrees such that evil, you know, pervades in, you know, more unique ways than, than at other, other times. And so the, so the result is, is you end up with a, with a culture that, that throws its hands up in the air and doesn't really know how to respond uh, to these kinds of things. 
You use a term I, I had never heard before, Scott, theodicy, which is an attempt to justify a good and sovereign God in light of the evil of the world. And, and several theodicies have been used to, to attempt to rescue God from the problem of evil, like the free will defense, like the natural law defense, the greater good theodicy, the soul-making theodicy, and, and the best of all possible worlds theodicy, and the divine judgment defense. Um, but you propose a different solution that's that's rooted in Scripture. Um, can you walk us through that a bit? Yeah. So, um, so most most people, you know, to to kind of back up a little bit, it's important to to frame the issue. What is the problem of evil, and, and why is it why is it a, a deep conundrum for Christians? Well, it's because Christianity believes that God is all powerful and he is all good. Okay, so if you have an omni, you know, an omnibenevolent God who is who is marked by an all-encompassing goodness, and at the same time you have an all-powerful God who is capable of doing anything that he wants in this world, then why would such an all-powerful, all-good God allow evil permit evil to take place in his world, or depending on your theological orientation, would in fact ordain mm -hmm. such evil to take place in the world. It, it seems to be, um, you know, it seems to suggest that such a God cannot exist, you know, because either he's not truly all powerful or he's not truly all good. And, uh, and so that becomes, that becomes a serious problem for Christians. You know, how could such a God you know, allow such evil to take place in, in this world. So how, how do Christians, how have they responded to that historically? Most have responded with what is known as the free will defense. And that is the idea that God granted human beings a kind of substantial degree of freedom of will, such that they have the equal ability to make good or evil choices and that, in fact, in order to make good choices and to be free and responsible in making good choices, humans have to have the ability to, to make bad choices as well. Um, if you don't give them this kind of freedom, then whatever choices they make, you know, supposedly would be compelled. They would be like robots. Uh, you know, like programmed computers, and therefore they would have no free freedom in the choices that they make. And so in order to grant, you know, this kind of freedom and responsibility that is regarded as a, as a cherished, you know, gift from God, then by God giving humans this kind of freedom, he takes a risk that they will use that freedom to make evil choices. And so this is known as the free will defense or the free will theodicy. And it's intended to, to guard God against the charge that he is evil or somehow not good. Um, and so the value of free will is greater than the risk that God takes in giving his creatures such free will and them using it to do evil things. Mm -hmm. And so it's better for God to give people free will and take that risk that they will use it to do evil than if he did not give them any free will at all. 
Okay, now there's a host of problems with that view, but it is the most common response to evil, you know, that, that Christians make. Um, the, the, the response that I give in my book, which I call the greater glory theodicy, is really a variation of what is known as the greater good defense. Uh, it's a specific version of that particular way of responding. So the greater good defense simply says that God has very good reasons uh, for allowing evil to take place um, that, that uh, indicates that he brings about certain goods, greater goods, and that's why it's called the greater good theodicy. He brings about greater goods, you know, good things out of evil that could otherwise not happen unless that evil occurred okay and so um so the soul making defense is, is an example of that for example uh how do we develop courage you know as a as a virtue well you know develop courage unless you have a set of circumstances in which there's fear or or some kind of adversarial set of conditions that requires you to have courage so you think of of you know someone in the middle of battle you know in a war who has courage to go and fight the enemy and, and rush toward the enemy lines and 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 defend uh his country or whatever uh that takes courage well such courage would never be necessary or wouldn't even be a thing you know unless there were a set of conditions that required courage and so, you know, could be moral evil or natural evil. Uh, you know, if if your house is on fire, and and you know you run in to save, you know, your family or your dog or whatever, that takes courage because you're running into the face of danger. You're you're risking your own life, you know. And so, the good virtue of courage, there would be no virtue of courage unless you had such conditions such dangerous conditions by which the opportunity for such a virtue could be expressed and so so god you know creates conditions in the world you know this 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 theodicy says in order to develop things like courage or forgiveness mercy you know um mercy and love you know as an expression of love is a unique expression of love and, and extending forgiveness towards your enemies for example as a unique expression of love that would never be a thing unless there was evil you know unless somebody had done something evil to you uh and and you extended love and forgiveness towards that person um you know we value you know mercy you know, as a great virtue, but such a virtue would never exist unless we lived in an evil world. So that's the greater good response, you know, and, and that's just one example. There are many goods that God brings about from evil that otherwise he could not bring about unless that evil occurred. And so many of this persuasion would say, well, if, if this is true, in order to still protect God from the charges that he is evil, it would mean that 
there is a greater good that comes out of evil than the goods that would come if there was not evil. And they have to be weighty enough goods, you know, that come out of the backside of evil, you know, uh, to justify the existence of evil. So one, one theologian gave the example, you know, we wouldn't say that a Holocaust survivor who invented your favorite, you know, flavor of ice cream and he would have never invented that flavor of ice cream unless he had gone through the Holocaust, you know, and experienced the carnage of six million Jews being murdered by the Nazis and all of that. And that, but one of the good things that came out of that is that he invented this amazing flavor of ice cream, you know, that is a good thing, you know, but surely that is not something that is not a weighty enough good to justify the entire Holocaust. That's an extreme example. That come out of the evils to which they are connected to, those goods must be really weighty and far more weightier, you know, than any goods that could occur if there were no evil that was connected to them. So that's the kind of the greater good theodicy, and there's many variations of that. So that's a backdrop for what I propose in my book. And what I suggest is that because God is all good and all powerful and all wise and, and the full you know, nature of God is such that he would never design a world in which evil occurred and, and that evil just was senseless and had no purpose, had no meaning had no connection to God's plan and purpose for the creation, for his unfolding plan uh, for all of history, you know, unless, you know, you know, God would not create such a world. And I, I think by understanding the very character and nature of God himself, we know that he would not create anything or allow anything to take place in this creation that has no purpose, no meaning, no connection to what he is doing and why he made the world in the first place. Um, and, and so we can't go down the path of thinking that somehow evil is completely meaningless. Okay, so that's, a, that's an important presupposition uh, that, that we come to when we're thinking about evil. And so then it raises the question, okay, what is God's purpose in creating the world? Well, it wasn't because he was lonely. It uh, wasn't because he had some need to create the world. Um, God was fully satisfied in his own Trinitarian self-satisfaction mm -hmm. and has no need for anything. He had no need to create the world. He had no need to create human beings. Uh, and so why did he? Well, I believe the historic and the biblical answer to that question is, is that God, in his own freedom, chose to create the world in order to share his glory with his creations, especially his image-bearing creatures who are us human beings. And so God created the world in order that he might magnify his glory, particularly to human beings, okay? But I go even a step further than that. I say that God desire to supremely magnify his glory. Now, let, let me clarify what I mean by that. When God created 
the conditions of the original creation prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, that was a very good world. You know, Genesis tells us that, you know, on, on, on the sixth day, after the sixth day, he looked at what he created and he said, this is very good. And he rested on the seventh day. And, and so did that world bring glory to God? Absolutely, it did. And so God was glorified in Eden, in pre-fall Eden, and, and the righteousness and the beauty and the truth that existed in Eden prior to the fall. Now, he could, have, he could have created conditions in the world where that would have stayed that way. He did not have to create conditions for Adam and Eve whereby they would fall. And you ask, well, how's that so? You know, wasn't it inevitable that they would fall? Of course not. Because we know for a fact that God will create conditions in a future world, the new heavens and the new earth, where it's not possible for humans to fall in that world. It's not possible for them to sin. So it's obvious from that reality that God created conditions in the Garden of Eden that allowed Adam and Eve to fall. Why did he do that? Well, I suggest is, is because it was intended to bring about supreme glory for God. And how is, that, how is that the case? Well, where do we look at in the history of the world where God has been most supremely magnified in his glory? And it's a simple question that you can ask any Christian. And I've asked many people this just off the cuff. Uh, many Christians, and they all say the same thing. Well, he was most glorified in the death and resurrection of his son, whereby we are saved, right, through the work of the gospel. And so the gospel, I believe, is at the very center of biblical explanation for why God has permitted or, in fact, ordained evil in the world. And it's to supremely magnify his glory. Where has his glory been most supremely magnified? Through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and we might even add ascension uh, and second coming of Christ to bring consummation to God's whole plan of redemption for the world. And so without sin, none of that would be necessary. Mm -hmm. If sin had not entered the world, if the fall in the Garden of Eden had never taken place, there would be no need for the incarnation. There would be no need for God to send forth his son to die a death, a substitutionary atonement to save people from their sins, to redeem them from death and sin and evil and the devil and, and misery and suffering and pain. And that by doing that, he magnifies his glory in a way that he could never magnify unless he had created conditions where this crisis of evil came in and ruined everything. And then he sent forth Christ as a redeemer to rectify everything, to defeat evil, to defeat the devil, to defeat sin, to defeat death, and to defeat pain and suffering. And, um, and that all of those things find value and find meaning ultimately in the redemptive work of Christ. And this explains in a broad sense why God caused the fall, why we see all the evil in the world, the extent of such evil, and the intensity of such evil. Because in the end, all of it will be such that it will magnify God's glory 
not only in redemption, but in judgment as well. God will be glorified in his judgment of sin and evil, but is even more greatly magnified in his glory through the work of redemption. So we might say God is magnified in his justice and his judgment, but is even more magnified in his mercy, his grace, and his work of redemption. Because those who are redeemed have a great appreciation for what they have been saved from due to the fact that they have had to go through this mess of sin and evil and death and misery and pain and suffering. And that all of that God uses to then magnify his glory and their redemption and their own future glory. Um, and, and of course, there is a whole host of things that we can tease out in, in that, that broad explanation. But that's, that's the basic thesis of my book. So, Scott, I, I love all the truth that, that you lead us to in chapter 12. You write a, about the Felix Culpa or the fortunate fall. Sin is maximally dark, which causes God's glory to shine forth even brighter. Um, does Christ's atonement just bring us back to where we were in the beginning, or does it do more than that? Do we have a U-shaped narrative in Scripture or a J-shaped narrative in Scripture? Yeah, good question. So for your, your audience to understand the difference between U-shaped and J-shaped narrative, it's important to understand what, what you mean by that, or what I mean by that in the book. Um, a U-shaped narrative is um, in scripture is represented by the notion of creation, fall, and redemption. This is a common way for all theologians and students of the Bible to frame the whole history of God's work of redemption. You start with your creation and its perfect, unsullied conditions without sin, without evil, without death. Uh, and, and this represents the ideal conditions of the world that God created, the very good world God created. The fall represents a massive conflict, uh, a crisis, if you will, that entered and, and disrupted and really shattered the goodness of Eden, shattered the goodness of the original paradise and, and, uh, uh, and caused you know, to enter into the world, the curse to descend upon this good creation and, and, and ruin it. And so that's the, the bottom of the U-shaped portion of the story, if you will. You've got, you know, you've got creation, and then at the bottom uh, of the U-shaped narrative, you have the fall, and then you have the resolution of the conflict of the fall which is the work of redemption centered on the work of person and work of Christ. So that's the U-shaped narrative. Okay. Now I suggest to you that that paradigm uh, of the U-shaped narrative is present in all good storytelling, whether it's Christian or not. Mm -hmm. And that every good novel, every good story you hear, every good movie that you watch almost universally, you see this pattern of, of, conflict, a, a conflict resolution paradigm, right? That every good story has, has at least the assumption of, of a happy world, of an ideal world, of the way things are supposed to be. And then you have some conflict that enters the story that ruins that good world. And then you have some hero 
that enters the story that, you know, that faces the villain or the conflict, you know, or the villain who brings the conflict and somehow overcomes that conflict, brings resolution to the conflict and, and returns things to the happy ever after, the happy ending, you know, and, and all the great stories and movies that we love, you know, have that kind of framework to it. Okay, where did that come from? Well, I believe God hardwired it in our thinking as human beings because we live in this fallen world. We know this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we long for a world that's like the paradise of Eden, whether or not we're aware that such a world existed or not. And so we intuitively long for some kind of a redeemer or some kind of a set of conditions, uh, this utopia, if you will. And, and every worldview has some kind of way of, of seeking to redress this conflict that we all live in. Because we all know we live in a world, no matter what your religious inclinations are, your ideological inclinations, what philosophy, what worldview you hold. We all know that we live in a dark world and, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and so, so where, do, where do we get that notion? I believe it's hardwired within us because this is the way God made the world. Okay, now how does that differ from what I call the J-shape, uh, the Felix Culpa, you know, which, which translates fortunate fall. In other words, you know, when we look at the fall of Adam and Eve, we say, wow, that was really unfortunate. I wish they hadn't have done that. You know, why, you know, why did God allow them to do that? And it seems like an unfortunate occurrence. Well, this is counterintuitive, you know, that it was in fact fortunate. Why? Because it allowed God to then bring redemption through the work of Christ. Now, you might say if, if, if all God is doing is just restoring the conditions of Eden, you know, why did he have to go through all that anyway? It, it means the end result is no different than the beginning. You know, but I'm suggesting that the end result, which is ultimately the conditions of the new heavens and the new earth, are far better than the original conditions of Eden. Why? Because it is through the crisis and God's display of his mercy and his grace and his power uh, that magnifies his glory in a way that he could never magnify unless the fall had taken place. So, for example, God can never magnify his glory and judgment. And a great example of that is the judgment upon the Egyptians during the Exodus, you know, with the, the plagues and the darkness and, the, and, you know, and the parting of the Red Sea and all of these massive displays of divine power and judgment in which his glory is supremely magnified. But at the same time, his glory is not only magnified in judgment, but also in the redemption of his people Israel as they escape this evil world that they had lived in under Egyptian oppression, right? And, and, and it's why, you know, uh, you know, American slavery has always drawn imagery from the Exodus, you know, in, as a parallel between their own deliverance or hope for deliverance from slavery um, you know, just like the Egyptians and, and all that, that imagery has been used the world over. 
because it, it, it demonstrates a powerful message of God, uh, God and his just wrath and his judgment and his justice and his righteousness. But God is certainly glorified in judgment, but he is even more glorified in his redemption and his mercy and his salvation, such that, that those who are redeemed, those who are saved, have a greater appreciation for God's glory, for his grace, for his mercy and his power, uh, his undeserved mercy to wretched sinners who were steeped in their own sin and who were assaulted by the sin of others. And it's important for us to understand that when we talk about the work of redemption, we're not just talking about God saving us from our own sin. Yes, that is central to the work of the atonement. But God, in his work of redemption, is not just saving us from the consequences of our own sin, but he's ultimately saving us from the consequences of all sin in the world. Because we are not only oppressors in the sense that we oppress others and, uh, with our own sin and rebel against God in that, but we are also the recipients of the sin of other people who oppress us and treat us unjustly. And, and um, you know, in, in a cursed world where disease and, and famine and tornadoes and earthquakes and all kinds of natural disasters, you know, bring about, you know, these cursed conditions that we live in. God is going to save us from all of that. And we will have no appreciation for the wonder of who God is and the fullness of God's attributes you know, in terms of the expression of his righteousness and justice and mercy, unless he had created conditions where the fall would take place. You know, we've seen no manifestation of God's justice. So the storyline would be flat, right? There would be no U-shaped storyline. There would be no J-shaped storyline, which is when, in which the end conditions are far greater than the initial unsullied, unsullied conditions, you know, and they're greater because of the crisis and the price that God had to pay in order to bring about this greater good, you know, through the condescension of his son, the incarnation, the suffering and humility of, of the son of God and the depths of depravity that he had to have heaped upon himself in order to destroy, you know, this evil uh, mess that rested upon his shoulders, you know, on the cross and bore the weight of God's wrath for sin and then, and then demonstrated his power and victory over it through his resurrection and then his ascension and then his eventual return and the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God uh, in the new heavens and the new earth and, 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 and all of that. And so, we wouldn't know the greatness of God's glory without all of that. And so that's why it's better for us to live in a fallen but needing to be redeemed than a fallen, an unfallen, not needing to be redeemed world, right? So if we lived in a world that was never, that had never fell and never needed to be redeemed, the storyline would just be flat, right? Adam and Eve would just, you know, had had produced a progeny 
that would forever exist in this unsullied state of righteousness and perfect conditions. Seems like a wonderful world, right? But what I'm suggesting is that that world is not nearly as awesome as a world in which the fall occurred. God redeemed that world through the great hero of history, Jesus Christ himself, who came in and bore that conflict upon his shoulders and destroyed it and destroyed evil, destroyed the devil, uh, destroyed death, and brought a restoration to those same conditions, but they're greater appreciated because of the conflict and the price he had to pay in order to redeem it, in order to rescue us from this, this conflict, this crisis. So that's why I believe the storyline is J-shaped. The end is better than the beginning because of the crisis that God took us through in order to get to that end. And it should, what, what your answer does, and I, I'm, my Zoom video is starting to break up a little bit. I think we're having some, some internet problems here at the end. But what your answer does is it leads us to worship not human free will, but it ultimately leads us to worship God, who is the architect of all human history. And yes, it's a, it's a very God-centered theodicy as opposed to the free will defense that I think is more human-centered. Yes, and, and it does. Just hearing you say this, all of this, knowing that God is meticulous in his sovereignty, is meticulous in, in leading us to salvation and in the future of the world, that God, <laughs> that God designed a world in which his son would be the hero. Um, in which his son would be magnified and glorified maximally. And then we would not only just be, we wouldn't be brought to an Adamic state or an, an Edenic state, but we would actually be united with that hero in resurrection. Yes. Yes. With him. Um, that is far greater than, than any mind could possibly conceive. And you're right that what other storyline, what other narrative in our world would ever come up with something like that. Yeah. Um, that, that instead of this hero simply being, you know, exalted as a hero, as a king on his throne who rescued his people, but he would actually bring his people into his kingdom and then give himself to them in, in yes. such intimate union. Um, so just hearing, hearing your, I, I, I don't even, I even want to be careful to say your, um, framework for this because I really believe this is the biblical way to approach this. Yes. Just hearing hearing this from you um, just brings me to a place of worship, and that that alone kind of tells me, all right, we're on the right track here. Yes, yes, I believe so. And uh, you know, I I think a lot of people, a lot of theologians in history have been afraid to go this direction, and I don't really know why. Um, but I mean, I think there's always been this fear that we don't want to associate God too closely to evil because he might somehow get tainted by it. But God himself doesn't do that. He shows himself to be intimately involved in every aspect of creation in history. And that concludes good and evil. And God is never afraid that somehow evil is going to taint his perfect goodness and righteousness and purity and holiness, and transcendence, and awesomeness as God. In fact, it magnifies those things. And, and, and too often, I think theologians have been too timid 
in their approach to the problem of evil because they're afraid somehow of tainting God with evil. And the Bible has no such concern <laughs> in that regard. When you look at it, it is raw. It is powerful. It, it, it indicates that God is, is deeply involved in the, the transpiring of evil. And yet because of his transcendence, his goodness, and his ultimately uh, good and wise and righteous intentions for evil, so supersede any notion that he could be blamed for evil that we cannot, you know, we don't need to risk the notion that somehow God is going to be culpable for evil uh, because we know that his intentions are supremely wise and supremely good and intended to bring about his glory. And, uh, and therefore he can't be tainted by evil uh, because he admit he does not have a single evil intention ironically for the evil that he has in fact ordained. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot of important questions that, that, are, that arise in, in, in all of this. And, and you even raise issues that make this all the more glorious that, you know, we don't have just a king that sits, you know, on a throne, but one who has been intimately united to the people that he is redeeming. And that's a, that's a very good observation about what God is doing mm -hmm. in, in all of this. And so we can rejoice and we can worship and, and we can comfort those um, as pastors who are enduring evil and suffering, not just with flippant pat answers. We're not talking about that, um, but we can, we can comfort them with confidence in the sovereignty of God in all things. Romans eight twenty eight. of course, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that that all creation groans and is awaiting the day that we are, his people are, are glorified and, and we are transformed and changed. Um, what an absolute joy it's been, Scott, to, to spend time with you and to talk with you, even as a Broncos fan. Um, uh, <laughs> it's been a joy to do that. Uh, I don't want to take any more time. Um, you've mentioned an upcoming project that you're working on right now to, to kind of condense um, the problem of evil and, and your book, What About Evil, into a, a smaller digestible um, book for, for folks. But What About Evil? An incredible book, a gift to the church that every pastor, theologian, and, and churchmen, churchwomen need to read and to, to glean from um, to be encouraged that, that God is in complete control and we can trust him. He's on his throne. Thank you, Scott, for your time, brother. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure.